Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us is Brandon Purcell, senior analyst, to discuss the ethical questions raised by artificial intelligence or AI. Welcome, Brandon. Hi. So at its heart, AI is intended to mimic human behavior. But if you take a step back, human behavior is flawed. It's loaded with biases, instincts born from experience, and in some cases, tribal behavior based upon how one sees the world. Part of the challenge facing the ethical questions is AI is codifying all those flaws. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, that's absolutely a fair statement. I mean, there's this term algorithmic bias, which is what data scientists are trying not to introduce into machines, but it's actually a misnomer because the algorithms themselves are quite unbiased. It's the data that contains bias um, that we're trying to uh, rectify. So, Brandon, the three components of AI are the ability to see the world as it is, which is things like image recognition, speech analytics, and video analytics, to think and make judgment on things through machine learning or on a deeper learning or deep learning, and then to act. And I want to sort of bring in that third piece because I think it's the heart of the ethical question, which is when humans go through that same set of steps, the human can perceive whether they're going down the right path. And if something happens wrong, they can autocorrect pretty quickly. And I think the underlying fear of AI sort of goes to sort of the, the sense of robotics, which is the machine has already been built. It is simply going to go and execute upon the algorithm independent of those kinds of uh, sensories or its perceptions are going to get back. Is that part of the problem here, which is the fear that the algorithm is sort of automated and, and just going to take flight? Yeah, that is. That is. And that, that brings up a really important part of AI, which is the continuous learning that that AI enables, that machine learning inherently enables. And today's artificially intelligent systems are typically taught once, and then they use the same set of logic to continuously score records or, or in other words, make decisions until they are retaught using new data. And that can happen on a daily basis, on a monthly basis. It very rarely happens in real time. So the machine learning system is applying the same logic to its decision-making um, over a period of time. I think the promise of AI, though, is that these machines will actually learn in real time and pick up on new signals so they may make different decisions based on the data that they're, um, that's accumulating and, and that they're analyzing. Um, but to your point, I think the main difference between humans and artificially intelligent systems, at least the ones today, are that humans can optimize for multiple different objectives. So if I'm a marketer, I can optimize for clicks or uplift or conversions, but also optimize for, is this ethical? Am I treating different people differently based on race, religion, age, uh, sexual orientation? As a human, I take those things into account, um, oftentimes intuitively. A machine is taught to optimize for one outcome, clicks or conversions. And so you have to teach it additionally um, some ethical framework. And most people aren't really thinking about that. Is that what happened in some of the, I would call them, high-profile worst practices in the market? I'm thinking Google Photos and Amazon Prime um, and, and sort of not taking into account the ethical components of um, the machine learning or AI in those examples. 
Yeah, well, that's absolutely right. And you bring up two um, closely related examples, but they demonstrate two different types of bias that can be introduced into a into a model using machine learning. So in the in the Google case uh, with Google Photos, there was a uh, programmer in Brooklyn who uploaded his photos into Google's Google Images, and the photos were classified, and it came back with a number of accurate classification, and then a picture of himself and a friend classified as gorillas. And now, of course, Google didn't intend to build a racist algorithm, but what they what they also didn't do was they didn't take a diverse enough sample set of data to train their algorithm to recognize the faces of people of color. Um, and so what ended up happening was uh, a racist outcome. And, and of course, you know, this was highly publicized and, um, and was a hit on Google's reputation. And, you know, their fix to that was just to not categorize anything as gorillas anymore in the short term. Now, in the longer term, they've cobbled together in data scientist terms a corpus or a large collection of data with labeled images of people of color to train that algorithm to be better. But there, that's true algorithmic bias. The problem was that Google's training data, the data that they used to teach the machine to recognize images, wasn't diverse. It didn't reflect the reality of the world that that, uh, that model would be used upon. So that's, that's algorithmic bias. The Amazon problem is, is, is a little bit different. So uh, the, the case you're referring to with Amazon was when they rolled out same-day delivery service, I think in um, 26 or 27 major metropolitan areas, they did it by zip code. And in a number of these metropolitan areas, um, it was only rolled out to predominantly white zip codes and not predominantly black zip codes. I think Atlanta was one of the worst offenders where 96% of white residents in Atlanta um, would be eligible for same-day delivery and only 41% of black residents. So there was a real um, obviously a real disparity there. Of course, Google did not intend to do this. They were looking at zip code and looking for where the highest density of current Amazon Prime customers were. But when you introduce something like zip code into an equation where it can act as a proxy for race, you might end up getting a racially biased outcome, which is what happened um, in this case and happens in many cases. And that's the result of something called redundant encoding. And redundant encoding is best exemplified by if you were to ask people, are you a single parent? Well, you're not asking people, are you male or female, but 82% of single parents are female. So by asking that question and using that in a model, you're actually using a proxy for gender. This is a much more difficult uh, problem to attack uh, when you're modeling and probably shouldn't be the data scientist making these decisions because ultimately you're going to be um, changing uh, data to, or, to arrive at a more just outcome. How much of this is strictly the immaturity of the marketplace, or is there some inherent complexity to this equation that even in a mature space we would expect to see sort of the same thing? Yeah, there is, a, you know, a lot of this is the immaturity of the market, I think, from the, the point of view of, you know, rolling out these products and services with the disparities um, existent without first picking up on that and, and, and identifying that, that speaks to the immaturity of the market. But 
Um, I'm not sure that maturity will end up solving a lot of these questions. And that first uh, example with um, the incomplete data that resulted in algorithmic bias, most data scientists will tell you it's really, really difficult to get a training set of data that looks exactly like the larger population you're going to use uh, an artificially intelligent system on. So data scientists look for something called IID, um, independent and identically distributed training data. And in a perfect world, you'd have that. But in a lot of places, and, and here in the States is a good example, um, oftentimes the, the data samples you have on racial minorities are smaller and, and also less, less accurate. So it's harder to get that, um, that IID data you need um, to create an unbiased model. So you have to do, um, you have to do further due diligence on your data um, to ensure that your models are complete. So your two examples that sort of showcase the issues of IID and redundant encoding pointed at the pressure on the data to serve a primary interest in making the algorithm work as intended. How far along are we in building those data sets? And then if I look out five years, is that just one of those things where we'll never be perfect, so we'll always sort of have that ethical thing hanging over our heads? Well, the short answer to the question is yes. I do think that the ethical sword of Damocles is going to continue to, to hang over R and, and companies' heads. Now, there are people working very hard at figuring this out. And here I, I have to mention the um, the – um, the efforts of the computer science team at UMass, they just cr- produced a software called Themis, or Themis, I should say. And Themis is the Greek god of justice. And what Themis does is it tests your algorithms to ensure that they aren't using race or age or gender or sexual orientation in their decision-making by simulating the decisions of the algorithm by taking out those different factors one at a time and seeing if that impacts uh, uh, the decisions. And so I could see a world in which that is um, a part of the evaluation of models before they're actually deployed and, and potentially regulated as well. So to that point, Brandon, does the, the makeup of a team change that it's not just data scientists looking at the data, but potentially others, I don't know, anthropologists or other, other folks um, to understand the nature of the data as an input? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think so. I mean, the first thing, and we've seen a case of this recently at Google, is that I think the the team needs to have a diverse range of backgrounds um, as opposed to being um, kind of an echo chamber so that there are um, diverse opinions existing in the team. But it shouldn't just be made up of data scientists. I love the example of of having anthropologists. Um, I was talking to a uh, robotics company that's trying to actually come up with the artificially intelligent robots, and um, one of the markets they're thinking about entering is Japan. And in Japan, you wouldn't create a robot that um, looks directly into somebody's eyes right. just like you would here in the United States because that would be a sign of, of aggression or impoliteness. Mm-hmm. And so you have to take into account those cultural nuances and, and you know, you can't count on a, a data scientist to do that. The other thing, I would say that um, folks need to start thinking of their customers and other stakeholders as extensions of their teams because, you know, one of the things that AI enables us to do is to listen to a broader set of of our customers and stakeholders through, you know, voice of the customer and um, and even through emotion recognition and, and uh, monitoring how customers react to experiences with us visually. And then also in developing these things to actually ask our customers, what do you expect? expect from us as a brand um, in terms of, you know, how we treat different, different groups of people. 
Yeah, that's a key point because if you look at advertising, advertising's job is to target certain segments of the population differently based upon signals that the company gets or things that the company wants to get accomplished. You know, in definition, it is discriminating against a population by doing something for one one segment and doing something other for another segment or not attempting to serve a segment. I mean, that is the basic blocking and tackling of advertising is that segmentation. So AI is not doing something newly wrong. It's just putting that in motion from an automated sense. You're absolutely right. I mean, I would argue that bias is precisely what we're developing these systems to have. Um, we want them to exploit or identify and exploit useful biases to show the right messages to the right people and provide the right service and experiences to the right customers. But we don't want to introduce harmful biases. And we want, uh, ideally, I would say all brands would like all customers to have equal opportunity for access to their um, their products and services, um, regardless of um, you know age, race, sexual orientation, gender, and a number of other factors. I think those are the those are where the harmful biases get introduced. But if you think about, I like to think about Waldo and Charlie Brown. I mean, these guys they don't really change up their outfits, right? But you wouldn't sell the the red and white striped shirt to Charlie Brown because he's probably not going to buy it. You want to you want to market that to Waldo. It's a funny way of phrasing it because in the examples of Google and Amazon, it was clear that they went too far. But serving everyone the same way is equally going way too far. So everyone's going to be living in this middle of decision making. So what is an ethical question and what is good business? If I'm a marketer, how do I know those lines between a bad ethical decision that event affects my brand and essentially really good targeting? That's a great question. And this is where I think employing a diversity of opinions and listening to a diversity of opinions from your customers makes a lot of sense. I do have a, um, an, a I think, somewhat catchy acronym for this. It's FAIR, um, F-A-I-R. The F stands for fundamentally sound. So this is where I was talking about that um, independent and identically distributed training data before before. Make sure your models are are fundamentally sound. A would be accessible. This is another big piece we haven't really talked about, but um, how do we identify how the machine learning algorithm is actually making decisions? Some machine learning algorithms are pretty transparent, where you, where you could see how a decision was arrived at. Others, neural networks, for instance, are, very, are opaque, completely opaque. And so um, in the GDPR world, uh, which is, you know, uh, coming into existence next year, companies that do business in, in Europe are going to have to be able to show how their models made decisions. So they need to be accessible. I, um, inclusive. So are we, are we including or excluding certain groups of customers? And this would be um, the Amazon example. And then um, finally, um, reversible. And this is really the golden rule. Would I like this model to make decisions on me if I were a customer? So, Brandon, earlier in this discussion, you brought up the concept of interpreting emotion. And we've had a lot of discussions with James McQuivey and others about sort of the new science of emotion that's coming into sort of mainstream marketing and certainly mainstream customer experience, which is people are driven by their emotional state and emotions will drive their decisions of affinity or spend. And that may fluctuate within a day or moment by moment. And so AI is necessarily part of that equation of interpreting and then acting on emotion. I mean, we have people now applying tools of similar type to interpret the level of frustration or anxiety of someone coming into a call, calling into a call center and then lining them up with a persona. 
So there's nothing unethical about that, but you can see how if I don't inform the caller that I'm doing that, that that might cross a boundary of sort of profiling them or trying to put them into a sort of a place where they don't want to be. Well, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and I think that this this touches on the question of creepiness as well, because when I think of emotion, I think there's a whole subcategory of AI called emotion recognition, which is using uh, images, uh, the image of your face to identify, okay, based on the way the different muscles are constricting in the face, what is the emotion that the customer is feeling right now? And um, typically when I talk to people about that, they think that that's incredibly creepy. Um, but you could see it, it could also be very useful for identifying, okay, what what is a customer experience? as they're walking through the store or potentially even as they're watching um, video or, or an advertisement online um, to best um, tailor that experience to that customer's emotional state. And so AI is really going to revolutionize uh, our ability to understand customers' emotions through that technology, through you know text analytics is getting a lot better thanks to deep learning and therefore sentiment analysis of text is, is getting um, extremely good. And then finally, um, chatbots. You know, most com- companies are thinking about deploying chatbots for customer service, but there are a number of vendors who are actually creating chatbots for market research to ask customers, "How are you feeling about um, about your transaction and behavior with us?" And those chatbots can get really deep into the customer psyche um, as the customer is interacting with your brand. I guess that's where the creepy comes in because those sensors, whether those are beacons, IR sensors, others that are really being deployed now. The issue is not that the, the sensors exist. The issue is that everything becomes possibly a sensor, to your point on chatbots, which is everything is a point to which the company's learning a lot about me and then making a lot of decisions about how they're going to treat me, either well or differently, whatever it might be. It's, it's that connection point between an infinite amount of sensors and an infinite amount of decisions based upon those sensors. So far, we've seen that customers are amenable to um, to giving up their personal data as long as there is some form of convenience that will come from uh, from companies. Now, back to the question of ethics: If customers are giving up personal data, and then companies are using that to make discriminatory decisions on them, their friends or family, then customers are going to get extremely angry. So, how should companies think about how much automation to apply to some of? these decisions. Is there a, kind of an organizing principle or a framework that, that you recommend clients to use as they're thinking about automating points, points of the customer journey or whatever? Yeah, it, that, that's a great question. And I think that there is. I think uh, companies, to a large extent, need to think about two different dimensions when deciding how much to automate um, using algorithms. And so on the one hand, you want to understand what's the sensitivity of the decision, the, the spectrum of sensitivity. Is this going to uh, greatly impact the customer's life or not so much? So, um, you know, one point, um, one, one of the biased algorithms that uh, I've researched is uh, one that predicts the recidivism rate for for criminals, and it's used to determine um, the minimum bail and also the sentencing of criminals. And obviously, that's an incredibly uh, incredibly sensitive decision because it impacts a person's freedom. And so there, you'd, you'd really want a good amount of human oversight. Now, if on the other hand, you're deciding what uh, marketing campaign to send to somebody, um, and if it's a marketing campaign that potentially differs because of the color of a vehicle or a different wording, 
that's not really that sensitive. Um, and so there you could, you could really leave that decision up to the machine. But there's another piece as well. It's not just sensitivity. It's also how good do we think this algorithm is at its job. And um, there I would say that training data is a good proxy for accuracy because if you have a lot of data that's been used to train and vet the algorithm, there's a likelihood it's going to be making good decisions. And there you could, you could potentially automate. So we forced or believe deeply in the empowered customer, which is the customer is having an extraordinary impact on the evolution of markets and the way businesses have to work. And in this podcast, we're describing this parallel track, which is the empowered machine. So where are we in terms of sort of preference management where we see human behaviors being driven in great part between the dialogues are having with these chatbots or with these virtual agents in the future? Because you are seeing sort of a new balancing act between the empowered customer and the empowered machine here. One of the, the traits of today's artificially intelligent systems is that as they get smarter, they also get narrower. So uh, an algorithm or a model based on an algorithm will automatically gravitate towards the population where the message is likely to resonate the most, and it becomes kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and one of the ways to get around this is to introduce randomness into the, into the equation um, to get at people's diverse tastes and likes. And Netflix, actually, with their recommendation engine does a pretty good job uh, of this. They explore and exploit is, is, is how, they would, um, how they would term it. So they exploit your preferences. They say, okay, other people who have watched uh, this set of shows um, also would, would like this, this type of show. But they exploit randomness. They introduce other types of shows that maybe um, they don't have historical data on to identify whether this is an opportunity to actually grow your tastes and preferences. And so I think that in a, in a world where a lot of the decisions are being made by machines, there's an opportunity for people to come up with experiments and tests of new experiences to determine, okay, where are customers' preferences and tastes going and not just uh, dictate them because that can become stale. And, uh, and that's another risk to the customer experience. Yeah, well, not just stale, but in some cases it will over-advantage certain brands and disadvantage other brands, and the consumer doesn't know those decisions are actually happening because they're sort of buying into the objectivity of the narrative they're in with a virtual agent. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, that's on the brand level. That's exactly how it will uh, how it will unfold. And then on a on a social level, um, to think about the um, the recidivism algorithm that I mentioned before. I mean, you introduce this vicious cycle where there's you know data that for historical reasons is biased that um, that pre- that with an algorithm predicts a higher recidivism risk for African American. Um, uh, offenders and then, you know, worse incarceration for those offenders. And then that ends up creating this vicious cycle that we've seen in history. So, um, so that could certainly happen for brands and it can happen on an overall societal level as well. And it's something that we need to be talking about today and brands need to be thinking about, okay, what role do we want to play here? So in this podcast, we have stayed away from sort of the more far-reaching aspects of AI sort of encapsulated by Skynet. And we've stayed within the purview of the current world of which we live in, of which we already have raising some ethical questions. And we've learned that there's a fine line between a poor ethic and really good business. 
And we know we sit in a, we sit in a society now. We have watchdog consumers where if a company has a misstep socially, the consumer will call them out. And certainly, this is an area where they'll be hyper focused on. So how uh, how do I, as an executive, or how do I, as a marketer, make sense of all this? Being a steward of the brand and a steward of the ethics of the company itself. Yeah. So I I think I would argue that this is also a big scary thing, and it's more a more immediate threat, um, and that marketers and and organizations in general um, need to start need to start grappling with. Um, and one of the things that I I would think about as well is that. Um, AI can also serve as a moral mirror for society, uh, for companies. It's going to pick up on the biases and uh, discrimination that um, that is existent in our culture. And there, I think we have an opportunity, actually, once we identify it, to change it for the better, as opposed to uh, exploit it and continue uh, to proliferate it. So I think companies need to start thinking about what is their place in this potentially um, very positive change AI can bring about, and then on the flip side, of course, how not to fall into the pitfalls of of using this towards a discriminatory end. And then finally, on the um, on the existential side, um, you know, I I'm not as uh, as much of a fearmonger as as potentially Elon Musk, but there is this um, this parable of the paperclip maximizer, where if we created an artificially intelligent system and told that your narrow function is just to cobble together as many paperclips as possible in the world, well, the first thing that system would do is go out and get all of the existing paperclips. But once it had done that, it would start transforming materials into paperclips, and eventually those materials could be human beings, and we could wipe out the human race just by trying to get together as many paperclips as possible. Now, that's probably not going to come to pass, but it's a good example of unintended consequences. And AI is going to have some unintended consequences, just as nuclear fusion had unintended consequences. If we start thinking about those potential consequences today and how to measure for them, how to identify them, and how to correct them, then companies will will be able to really benefit from this technology. I'm sure we'll visit this topic again because this is a, an emerging, rapidly evolving, and roller coaster type arena. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.